And as we assess our lives, as we assess uh, the, the many um, things that have happened that have led us up to this point here this morning, um, you have brought us to hear from you, Lord. You have brought us to know what it means that you sent your son into the world for us because you love us. And that can seem so removed at times from what we experience. And that's why you give us parables. You tell us stories to help us make our lives comprehensible and so that we may come back to you, so that we may understand what your kingdom is about. And so would you reveal that to us this morning? Uh, We know that this takes uh, your divine presence. It is a a miraculous work uh, of your spirit to teach us that you did all these things and that you did them for us. And so would you come now in Christ's name? Amen. Um, So in the Gospel of Matthew, part of what Jesus has been addressing since chapter 11, especially when you get to places like John the Baptist, he's uh, talking about um, Jesus. And remember, John the Baptist's role in his whole life was to be the prophet of Jesus to prepare the way of Jesus. And he's even confused as to what Jesus is doing. He's confused as to why, why he is doing the things that he's doing. So he asks uh, the disciples of Jesus and to go and, and say, all right, are, are you the one that's to come or should we look for another? And that sort of sets the trajectory off for the next few chapters of Jesus explaining this, this question that everyone has. If the gospel... The gospel of God's kingdom has come into the world. Why are things still so confusing? Why are things still so bad? Why are, why are things still so brutal for the first century people who believed in the gospel that believed in Jesus? And this parable, I love this parable, is helpful as an explanation of how and why the good and bad are mixed in together, even in the first century. Most of us know this intuitively, but if you even think about your own lives, there is a sense into which we all live out of false narratives. We live with lies that tend to metastasize as we grow up and we begin to not understand that God has actually come to free you and to implant his good gospel in your heart, which will actually outlast further than all the bad things that happen to us in this world. So, for instance... If your parent told you growing up that you would never amount to anything and that you would never become anything in this world, oftentimes what a child does if that child internalizes that lie is that they do everything within their might to prove that wrong. And they work hard to become experts in their field. And that's, that's why evil is so confusing because it, got, it kind of gets intertwined with the good and the bad in this world. And so that they, they actually become beneficial to society and to others living out of the lie that they were told when they were little. Jerry Rice said this in his Hall of Fame speech. He said, the reason why no one caught me from behind is because I ran scared. I was so afraid of failing my parents and then later my coaches that that's what made me so good. As, a, as an athlete, because he believed the lie that he was never going to be enough. Now, uh, Jesus talks about this in this parable, in his own context, that the glory and the shame, the good and the bad are all interwoven together. And this is part of what 
this is part of why, you know, you can hate and love somebody at the same time. Like it's, it's confusing, especially with people in your family. Verse 25, Jesus is explaining that this is how evil works. The nature of evil is that it's a parasite off of the good. That it functions like an intruder and it enters secretly at night and is hidden so that you don't know what happened or who sowed the fake wheat among the real wheat. And Jesus is teaching his disciples how they're going to need to understand their lives and what's going to happen in the world. And he's saying this is how complex it is. It's very, very complex. But what's also true is that what Jesus sows in the world and specifically what he sows in the heart of a human being, what he implants in the heart of a human being will never be and can't be uprooted ever. And this is going to be very good news to the disciples when they are mistreated, which they will be. This is going to be very good news to people who are watching John the Baptist get his head cut off. And they're thinking, this is your prophet, Jesus, and he doesn't have a head anymore. What is up with that? And this is why Jesus tells parables. These parables set the reality of our lives within a context that's comprehensible. And the more you peer into the parables, the more God makes sense to you and the more you can make sense of your life. So there's this throwaway verse, seemingly, in verse 34 and 35, it doesn't seem like it's that important. It says, all these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables and I will utter what has been uh, hidden since the foundation of the world. One of the signs the kingdom of God had arrived on earth is that the true king, the Messiah, would be wise. That was an ancient tradition in biblical history and in Judaism. And so when, when Jesus, the true king, steps as the representative image of God in the world and he begins to speak in parables, what he's saying is that I'm the king. What has been hidden in the fabric of the whole world since the very beginning, I am about to reveal in and of myself. And I'm going to utter things that have been hidden in the heart of human beings and in the fabric of the world from the very beginning. And so what does that mean? Well, Jesus is saying for you today, uncover the things that have lain at the center of your soul from day one. Ask the questions that we're all honestly asking all the time. Why do I work so hard? Why can't I be still? Why is everybody struggling with anxiety? Why, you know, th this, is, this is a really confusing one. Why do terrible people have some like aspects about them that are great? And why do good people have skeletons in their closet? Why am I never quite satisfied with what I have? Why, why don't I like myself? When I look in the mirror, why, why do I always feel disappointed? Why am I never assured that things are going to be okay? Now, we have been subconsciously answering those questions our entire life. You know it, I know it. And we live out, we live out of how we answer those questions all the time. 
And the first century version of that for the Jewish people was, it, God, if you have come, if your kingdom has arrived, then why is our nation still being obliterated? If your kingdom is here, why is Rome still oppressing us? Why is my family not safe? Why can't we practice our religion? Why can't we be at peace? And so what Jesus does is that he throws down a parable. That's what a parable means. You throw down something. And he says, and I'm just going to reread it. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed a seed in his field. And while the men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did we not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest the, in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at the harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. And what he's going to explain is that he's talking about the judgment day the end of time and hell and that there's an evil, evil one in the world that has a personality. Now you may struggle to believe all of that. You may struggle to believe that evil has a personality or that there's a being named Satan. And if that's where you are, I want to explain why Christians would believe something like that in the modern world. The first is that Jesus talks about hell and judgment a lot, maybe more than any other topic. He talks about justice and that he will bring justice when it's all said and done. And so to, to not talk about that today would be to neglect a large portion of Jesus's teaching. But also to deny evil, to deny the works of Satan is basically to deny every intuitive moral instinct that we all have. That there is such a thing as good and bad. That things aren't just meaningless. Now, the, one of the premier thinkers on this topic is a guy named Miroslav Volf who grew up in Croatia, and he says this, the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance, which will be unpopular with many, but it takes the quiet of a suburban home to believe that human nonviolence results from a belief in God's refusal to judge. Here's what he means. He's saying, you, you think that God doesn't want to judge and that we don't need a God to judge, and that we don't need divine retribution. Why don't you tell my friends in Croatia that? Who had their families ripped away? Who having, why don't you tell your friends in, in, in the Ukraine that right now? And I know this is an in, in, in t- intense example, but you know, what he's saying is like, you know, rape, rape is talked about in a certain way by people who've not experienced it, But if you have experienced it, or if somebody in your family has experienced it, the only way to not react nonviolently is with the belief that God will bring judgment, that he will make it right one day. You take that with any form of suffering, human human retaliation, if, if you don't believe that justice is coming, you're going to have to retaliate. And not only that, you're going to think it's your duty to hate if you don't do it physically. 
you're going to think it's right to hate people. Now, I say all this to stress what the scriptures have always taught and that I want us to become aware of as we all we, we are all struggling with uh, being mentally stable right now. All of us, I think. Um, I want you to I want you to know that evil is real. And evil has a personality. And we are in over our heads when trying to understand and fight against the works of Satan. And I want you to see that even in verse 28, these workers, they have great zeal. So when they see the bad stuff in the field, when they see the bad stuff, what do they do? They're like, well, let's go. Let's go uproot it. Come on, let's get to work. And what does the master say? Well, that would be a very unwise move. One of my professors says, and this is, this is absolutely genius. He said, we, we have to understand the difference between a laudable aspiration and a wise way of going about doing something. We can have zeal, meaning this is how tricky evil is. Evil can use even our moral instincts against us and often does. And so how do we combat that? Well, we have to pay attention to how we hear, to how we listen. And you have to pray. This is what Jesus is constantly asking his disciples. He's like, just please pray with me. Evil is attacking me. Pray before you act. Wait before acting. I'm terrible at this, y'all. Absolutely terrible. One time uh, I was with a friend and we saw a car get stuck in the sand on the beach. And my friend, in an effort to try to help them get unstuck, you know, he was really eager to help. And so he gets in there and ties the rope around something underneath his car and it ends up being the radiator hose. And the radiator fluid drops all in the sand. And, and my buddy, in an effort to help, made matters a lot worse. And that's us. <clears throat> with our moral instincts because we don't stop and, and think about what God actually is saying, that it's all intertwined. All of it. The good and the bad. And so, when I mean, if you just, if you just imagine this scene where these soldiers come and attack Jesus and want to bring him to kill him, and Peter gets out a sword, right? Cuts off the ear. Remember what Jesus said? Peter, I have access literally to an army of angels. Don't you think I could do much more damage than your puny little sword? Stop. This evil is part of God's plan. This evil is going to consume me. And that's going to be the gospel for the world. So stop and wait and pray. I, I don't know about y'all, like, I really do struggle with this. In verse 30, that word let, where it says, let the weeds grow up, that actually has the connotation of neglect the field. Let the weeds overrun the garden is the idea. You struggle with I struggle with that in the world. Because if it's true, if it's true that God loves my children more than I could love them, and then they suffer if it's true 
that God loves the victim and the widow and the orphan and the homeless more than I could ever imagine. And yet the evil still continues to just ruin people. Well, how are the disciples going to need to process this in the face of their own mistreatment? Well, they're going to need to wait on God's vengeance. Wait. They will need a belief in divine wrath. Hell is rooted in God paying. This is, this is the beauty of the doctrine of hell. Hell is, is rooted in God paying very close attention to the ways in which you have been hurt. And to the evil that resides inside and outside of a human heart. And he will make it right. And parables help us trust that God, God's more in control than we are. And he sees everything. Everything. And this is what Jesus is teaching them. Don't take vengeance into your own hands. And don't even think that you have the capability to know who's going to eternal punishment or not. That's not for you to know. If you go doing that, what's going to happen is that you're going to uproot all the good that I've sown. And so what are they to do? And this is what I want you to come away with this morning. A Christian, a follower of Jesus, is supposed to be a hopeful realist. You are supposed to have hope, but you got to be real. That you see the evil, but it does not make you cave into cynicism. And it does not make you run away from it. This is what the explanation of the parables is going to do for the disciples because of what they're about to experience. Verses 37 through 43. This is his explanation of the parable. The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom and the weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Got it? <laughs> we all clear? <laughs> Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. But then the sons of righteousness will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. This is the very end of what's called the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament. That there was a prophecy, a guy named Malachi said, at the end of it all, there's going to be the shining of the sons of righteousness. But also, the destruction of all evil will happen at the same time. And what Jesus is saying is that there is a maturation of the crop of good and evil, that things will mature. They'll grow up together and don't try to sort it out until I'm ready. Let them grow up. Jesus tells them that I'm the sower. It is my field. The good seed represents the people that I want in my kingdom and the bad seed represents the evil, the sons of the evil one. He, he tells the Pharisees that their, their father is the devil in another gospel. Now, I just want you to think this through. How does this help people? How is this practical? The fact that he allows both the good and the evil to mature to their full end. How does that help? 
Again, he's pushing his disciples to long for a kingdom that does not exist in this world in full. And he's pushing you to long for the same. That your true citizenship is in a kingdom that doesn't have any sin or wickedness in it. Nor does it have any wickedness in your, in your own heart. That you have a heart that actually longs for and is inclined towards God at all times. And that your body and your mind and your soul doesn't know a day where you didn't long for that. For the king. The disciples are really going to need to know that that's their end when they're being killed for following him. And it's only when Jesus sends his angels to correct all of the wrongs that have gone on in this world that righteousness and peace and equity will reign. And until then, everything's going to be mixed together. Everything. And of course, we can hope for and push towards good ends and the good, the good ways of God. But ultimately, what we're wanting is what verse 43 says. For you to shine like the sun. Which is a reference to existing within the glory of God and you reflecting that glory back to him and back to each other. Forever. Look, what's happened to many of us in today, today's culture, whether inside or outside the church, is that we think our aim in this world is to be well-adjusted, happy, and sexually fulfilled. And we've sort of stopped there. And we think, like, if I can just settle my mind down, I'll be all right. And Jesus will not let you settle for that. Jesus wants way more for you than just to be at peace with your present circumstances. Another pastor said, Jesus didn't come to make you feel better. He came to make you a witness and to bear witness to his kingship in the midst of a broken world and in the midst of your broken heart. And that may result in you feeling good at times, but oftentimes it won't. And if you've noticed, uh, most of our society is really struggling with anxiety and depression because we've focused our attention on how we internally feel constantly. And we're constantly comparing ourselves to each other. And it's a trap. We've been trapped in our circumstances and Jesus wants to snap us into his reality, which is that we are destined to shine in his kingdom. And you may say, like, I don't know what that means. (laughs) What does that mean? Uh, I I think it means that maybe the places where you feel abandoned by God, the places of your deepest disappointment, are the places where God is going to come through for you, and in the end, you will see how he subverted evil in on itself to make you who you are destined to be. And he will come. And that everything, every person, every system right now is a mixture. And it's true in your own life and you know it. It's the easy way through this life to paint everything in good and evil. It's the work of the gospel to know that evil resides everywhere, even in human hearts. And we don't have the wisdom 
to uproot evil in this world because it looks exactly like, you know, the word for weed in this text is called darnel, which is a basically a fake looking wheat. So the weed and the wheat look exactly the same. And our call in this world is to not cave into nihilism, nor try to bury our hand, heads in the sand through fake optimism, optimism and to, to actually have hope. And how that plays itself out is that we are not to barricade ourselves off from the world. We are to live in the midst of the world, but never participate in evil. To be shrewd and innocent. So one example of that is there was a guy named John Sarks who worked for a uh, radio talk show in Dallas uh, with a guy named Bill Simmons. Bill Simmons is a really big radio head down in Dallas. And he said that John Sarks was a Christian and he would always be proselytizing him in the show. And he's like, you know, usually we would shut that down real fast because I don't like to hear any of that stuff. But he's like, with John, it was different. His way of talking about uh, his belief was seductive because he sort of always knew that it would work out for him in the end. And so he never got down. He, never, he, just, he just believed what he believed and he lived in the midst of us in a culture that was kind of brutal at times. Well, John, uh, John got cancer during COVID in his 30s after he had just had a child And then John ended up dying at age like 33. And Bill gave this tribute to him in one of his recent shows. And he's like, you know, like there was a part of me that even though I didn't believe what John believed, I kind of wanted it to be true. Just by how he lived. And. This is what it means to believe the gospel in the midst of the world. You just simply live alongside people constantly bearing witness to the king. That you don't ever try to downplay the confusion of your circumstances, but neither do you conclude that things are meaningless. And what happens when somebody lives out their life in the midst of the brokenness of the world while holding on to the belief that things will eventually be made right, what happens is that people see Jesus through you. And they want to be in the kingdom of God because it's better than what they're experiencing. You become an evangelist. Now, here's where the gospel of the kingdom becomes manifest. Um, The true king will sort it out in the end. And you need to believe that God is not negligent. He's not negligent. He sees And when you ask the question, does God see what I'm going through? Does God understand what I, because that's what John was struggling with. God's answer is, yes, I see. I sent my son into the world to be trampled under the feet of men so that I can prove to you that I see. That his dear son was sent into the midst of the most vicious people who would gnarl and gnash their teeth at the only one who truly loved him, and so that we can never say that God doesn't know my pain. God knows your pain, and these parables are here for you so that you can know that God sees the deepest parts of your soul, and he will make it right one day. But until then, don't take matters into your own hands. 
nor are you allowed to go and bury your head in the sand and say that everything's okay, because it ain't. But you have real hope if you have a God who died and rose for you in human form. If that really happened, there is real hope to be had. I'm going to close with this uh, last story. Um, I have a friend who, who lost his wife, and a few months after he lost his wife, he was walking around in Hy-Vee, the grocery store, you know, and that Pearl Jam song came on. It was a cover, Aware, Aware, Can My Baby Be? The Lord Took Her Away From Me. You know that one? Um, and he went into the bathroom because that's his story. The Lord took his wife away from him. And he just cried and cried and cried there in the bathroom. And as he was processing the pain of his wife dying, he's like, I don't understand how, how loving God could let this happen. I don't. I don't get it. But then he said, but there's got to be a reason. Because if there's not a reason, then why, why is my heart so tragically broke? Why, why am I so torn up? There's got to be a reason, right? Or there's nothing at all and it's all pointless. And here's what the parables do and here's what the gospel does. When you're looking at your life and you're horribly confused about the ways of God, the gospel says there is a reason behind what is not comprehensible to you, especially in your pain. And the Lord is going to transform that. And so that what becomes more true of you in the end will be that you are like the sun of righteousness that shines bright and it will be more true than your pain. Even though your pain feels like the most real thing to you right now, you've been living with these lies for decades, but what's coming for you is eternity. And the king says that what's more true than the evil lies that are planted within the world is that what I plant in the heart of a human being, I will harvest. He will get his. Which means that he will get you. And there's a sense into which you can't do anything about it. God says, I will get mine, and you are mine. He has the power to uproot any lie that we've been living out of without destroying us. And he says that he's the type of king that if you're the type of weed and wheat that has been bruised so much, that he is so gentle that he will not bruise you further. But until then, you must wait. Wait. That is the call of being a disciple of Jesus. Wait with hope. Let's pray and we'll continue in worship through confession and assurance. Father, we thank you that you have given us your word and you've given us your son. And we ask, Lord, that we would see all of it as uh, the, the deepest grounds for hope that we could ever imagine. Serve like you, serve because you first loved us. Oh, you freely gave yourself to us. The greatest debt was paid. So let us give ourselves in sacrifice.
love like you love because you first loved us we want to love like you 